0: A long time ago, I read a book about Walt Whitman that collected the odes and reflections and reminiscences and appreciations of Whitman by poets and writers from his own day on up to ours, and for a reason that I can't quite remember, I found the book pretty tiresome. Actually, I guess I do remember it because I found the book so tiresome. And it struck me that way because each of the poets, and these are obviously fairly creative people, were all reading themselves into Whitman or the Whitman that they saw beside them or that they idolized um, basically looked like themselves or like their friends, their, their own contemporaries in their own time. And it was just odd to me that, that would be the case. Uh, Whitman has always struck me for all his personableness, apparent personableness and hugeness and uh, uh, the way he portrays himself. That has always seemed to me to be just that, a portrayal. And that the actual Whitman is probably pretty mysterious. And there's sort of a danger in creating a Whitman or any any other person that you admire out of your own head uh, that has more to do with you than with uh, the actual person I'm sure I'm guilty of doing this with other people and with other things uh, but I don't think I've done this with somebody like quite like Whitman and it seems uh, one of the one of the parts of Whitman's life where this is done most often is when we begin to talk about his sexuality. It is assumed nowadays that he was just simply gay and lived a gay life, and perhaps that's the case. There is a book by Gary Schmidgall, a biography of Whitman that is simply called Walt Whitman, A Gay Life, and I do want to read that over the next few months to see what it says. But I sort of fall into the camp of those who are little more hesitant to ascribe to Whitman the literal life that he describes in his poems of love affairs with men and uh, this great outgoing personality who was just as outgoing with his uh, physical life and physical pleasures as he says he was. Thinking of other poets that I know, other creative people, Uh, and of myself as well, it's hard to believe that the portrayal that he makes of himself can be taken so literally, especially when it comes to something as strange and life-changing and sometimes frightening as physical intimacy or emotional intimacy. And what I wanted to read from tonight sort of skips ahead in uh, Paul Zweig's book about Whitman. It skips ahead and it is just a, uh, a long but I think very good section where Zweig uh, takes up the, the question of just what Whitman's relationship to sexuality actually was. And he begins by saying that towards the end of his life, when Whitman sat down with his friend Horace Traubel and just spoke to him, I think that there are seven or eight or nine volumes that Horace Traubel ended up publishing about his talks with Whitman. Uh, Towards the end of his life, Whitman confided to Traubel that there was a secret that he had and that he might let Traubel in on this secret. Uh, He never did. But this, uh, the idea of of there being this secret to Whitman's life is where Paul Zweig begins his discussion of Whitman and sexuality. This is what he says. Um, The idea that Whitman had a secret would tantalize his young Camden friend Horace Traubel as it has tantalized critics ever since. The secret, quote, might test you, Whitman told Traubel, becoming solemn, even, quote, disgust you. He never told Traubel any secret, or if he did, Traubel kept it to himself, and we can only wonder whether Whitman's secret was as Victorian, as sexual as it sounds. Was it related to the other secret that the english critic john addington simons has tried to ferret out when over the years he badgered whitman about the Calamus poems and their suggestion of homosexual love a century later whitman's sexual life is still a mystery was he homosexual did he become openly homosexual in the 1850s his new his new poetry A celebration of erotic freedom. Who were the men that he listed in his 1850s notebooks? Young, physically attractive, usually working men or stage drivers, even policemen, with some personal trait he noted. Liquid eyes, handsome, round red face. One night he walked up Gold Street after a fireman's parade with a tall young man named Billy. On another, he bumped into Ike, on Fifth Avenue, a fat drinking man, around 28, who rode a horse named Fashion in The Great Race. There was also Charles Brown, Broadway Brownie, and his friend Jakey, James Tall, genteel, and Johnny, round-faced, full, eyes-liquid, in Dunbar's and Engine House, and James Dalton, 20. Round face, lymphatic, lost front teeth. Also, Nick, black eyes, 40th Street, small. And here Zweig is quoting the little statements that Whitman has made about these men. In an 1860 notebook, a page is filled with an obsessive play upon the letters of the name Arthur Henry, with no description. And then there is this note, quote, December 28th, Saturday night Mike Ellis wandering at the corner of Lexington Ave and 32nd Street took him home to 150 37th Street fourth story back room bitter cold night works in Stevenson's carriage factory end quote there are dozens of these names (coughs) excuse me in the 1850s notebooks, and dozens more in the daybooks he kept in the 1870s and 1880s. Were these men Whitman's lovers? Possibly, but so many? The lists seem to be made at a sitting, as if Whitman periodically toted up his chance meetings with young men, catalogued them, made list poems, such as he envisaged as, quote, a new way and a true way of treating in books, history, geography, ethnology, astronomy, etc., etc., by long lists. These were, I suspect, part of Whitman's enterprise of keeping in touch. All his life, he was a collector of names, and one almost sees him leafing through his lists, reassured by the size of his collection. It is, after all, similar in its way to the editorials he had sent out day after day as a newspaper editor, like the filament filament of the patient spider in his poem. In Leaves of Grass, too, he invited an eternity of friends to gather close to him. Whitman's lists of young men read like a sad residue of his lifelong passion to be surrounded by throngs of comrades, or at least by names standing for comrades. Whitman never told Traubel his secret, and we must not dismiss the possibility that he was teasing his young friend. Anyway, it is clear by now that no simple answers are likely to be found to any of our questions. Whitman's gift of poetry was rooted deeply and variously in his life. No secret will disclose it, for it is all secret, and no secret as well. Whitman's lists of young men do not tell us that he was homosexual, or, if he was, that he performed athletic feats of intercourse and kept a score sheet. They do tell us, yet again, of his collector's mentality, which found a perfect form in the catalogues of the early poems and later in his book Specimen Days. Few poets have written as erotically as Whitman, while having so little to say about sex. For the most part, his erotic poetry is intransitive, self delighting. It veers towards the larger self delight of the mystical. Its analogies are with the ecstatic Sufi poet Rumi, or the tantric hymns of India, or the erotic swoons of St. Teresa. In practice, I suspect, Whitman was fairly chaste, the remote, edgy side of his character flaring up in intimacy, interposing an obstacle to love relationships of any sort. All observers seem to agree. That there were no women in his life. Acquaintances from his Long Island days remembered that he, quote, seemed to hate women, end quote. And a former student of his at Bayside on Long Island recalled, quote, the girls did not seem to attract him. He did not specially go anywhere with them or show any extra fondness for their society. He did not care for women's society seemed, indeed, to shun it. Young as I was, I was aware of that fact. End quote. His brother George made the same point, and it is borne out by everything else we know about Whitman, including his clumsy flight from his English admirer, Anne Gilchrist, in the 1870s. Any love he experienced was for men, that's clear enough, The lists attest to it, as do the extraordinary love poems of Calamus written in the late 1850s. As a young school teacher at Smithtown in the early 1840s, he had boarded with a family of one of his students, but, quote, the father quite reproved him for making such a pet of the boy, end quote. He told his friend Alan O'Connor years later, We glimpse here the ambiguity of Whitman's fondness for boys and see it again in the ties he formed with printer's devils and apprentices at his various newspaper jobs. And we see it at its most passionate in his confused, exalted state of mind while visiting the war hospitals around Washington during the Civil War and again in his troubled friendship with a young Washington streetcar conductor, Peter Doyle, In the late 1860s. At times, Whitman's attraction to men seemed to rule his character and his thinking. The Calamus poems are lucid rhapsodies of love and loss. They are among the finest love poems in our language, and they are addressed to a man. With Song of Myself, Calamus became a cornerstone for all the future editions of Leaves of Grass. It is a culminating moment when Whitman's ineradicable feelings were reinforced and clarified by a political theme. In Calamus, Whitman saw democracy as a fluid, lawless, yet orderly exchange of feelings among comrades, a network of intimacies on a vast scale. Democracy could succeed only as an unimpeded flow of love, of which he, Walt Whitman, would give the first example, with the open-toned utterance of his truest feelings. The poems of Calamus grounded Whitman's vision and gave it a wholeness. Intense love between men became, for Whitman, the fundamental bond. Half a century later, Freud, too, Would ground his idea of the communal feelings in the homosexual aspect of the erotic drives of men and women. We glimpse the opposing forces of Whitman's character in a pair of incidents that occurred a dozen years apart. During the late 1850s, Whitman spent many evenings at the home of his mother's friend, Abby Price. Mrs. Price's daughter, Helen, recalled these evenings years later in a long letter which Maurice Buck reprinted in his biography of Whitman. This affectionate letter gives us virtually the only intimate portrait of Whitman we have from these years. Helen described him discussing Swedenborgian spiritualism with a family friend, Mr. Arnold. Also, reading aloud a draft of Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, playing with the children, basking demurely, almost reluctantly, in his budding celebrity. One evening, the discussion turned toward, quote, friendship. And this is what the letter says. Quote, He said there was a wonderful depth of meaning, at second or third removes, as he called it, in the old tales of mythology, in that of Cupid and Psyche, for instance, It meant to him that the ardent expression and words of affection often tended to destroy affection. It was like the golden fruit which turned to ashes upon being grasped, or even touched. As an illustration, he mentioned the case of a young man he was in the habit of meeting every morning where he went to work. He said there had grown up between them a delightful, silent friendship and sympathy. But one morning, when he went as usual to the office, the young man came forward, shook him violently by the hand, and expressed in heated language the affection he felt for him. Mr. Whitman said that all the subtle charm of their unspoken friendship was from that time gone. This, and that's the, the end, of, end of, of that quote, this strikes me especially and especially nowadays, since the version of love and affection we are given in movies and melodrama, and even in novels and in and in love poetry as well, I suppose, and obviously in Whitman's own love poetry, the Calamus poems, it includes a not a freewheeling, not a careless uh, ease with physical intimacy, but that is always a component in it. It is almost as if the physical is the is the end of the spiritual or uh, the emotional or the mental attachment. Uh, all of those go together and find their flowering in the physical act of sex. And it is worth noting here that, at least according to this story, that, that is not what Whitman was looking for. Uh, it almost seemed that almost seemed as if writing poems about the physical act uh, and about almost uh, perfect physical encounters was enough for Whitman. Whether he believed that he was incapable of having these encounters himself or was simply too self-conscious we might imagine in order to do it and it sort of fits in with the idea of Whitman writing these amazing love poems but being unable to find their equivalent in his own life it almost makes sense that that is what he would do he would write these love poems rather than actually finding a way to to live them and as this story suggests he may well have preferred it that way but it is also worth repeating again here that, uh, as Paul Zweig says, this is virtually the only account of Whitman that we have like this. So, who knows? And uh, Paul Zweig goes on to say that the the man mentioned in the story was probably, excuse me, a man named Frederick Hoyne, a young German poet who had worked with Whitman at the Brooklyn Daily Times in 1857. Whitman gave Hoyne a copy of Leaves of Grass, and Hoyne began translating it into German but gave up, perhaps because Whitman had suddenly cooled towards him. The scene completes our senses of Whitman's stubborn reserve about his intimate life. More than a concealment, the silence seems to have been a condition of Whitman's feeling, He felt and didn't say. He took refuge in undeclared, maybe unshared feelings. I hate to have people throw themselves into my arms, he once told Horace Traubel, saying, they insist upon themselves, upon their affection. It is a feeling I can never rid myself of. End quote. Whitman had mythology at his fingertips and the reference to Cupid and Psyche is revealing. According to legend, after nights of anonymous love and darkness, Psyche schemes to light a lamp beside her bed in order to see her lover. The lamp falls over and spills scalding oil on Cupid who flees forever. Knowing him, she loses him. Like the stories of Oedipus and of Narcissus, That of Cupid and Psyche portrays the temerity and the precarious adventure of the lowliest, simplest human act to know another and to know oneself. And it was an adventure that Whitman shied away from. The golden apple could be savored only at a distance. And let me also uh, break in here again and say that Uh, nothing has I'll just keep reading Uh, uh, Paul Zwei goes on to say Ellen O'Connor remembered a bit of doggerel that Whitman liked to recite during his Washington years a mighty pain to love it is and yet a pain that love to miss but of all pain the greatest pain is to love but love in vain We can imagine Whitman clowning as he recited this little poem, yet it is touchingly appropriate. It expresses in the form of a jingle what Whitman had expressed in many of his calamus poems, the pain of his self-inflicted zone of silence, the lonely pride edged with humiliation, the anxious flight from what he wanted deeply and was reluctant to possess. As the critic Stephen A. Black has remarked, the kisses in Whitman's poems are always kisses of parting. And here are a handful of quotations from Whitman's poems. Sit a while, wayfarer. Here are biscuits to eat, and here is milk to drink. But as soon as you sleep and renew yourself in sweet clothes, I will certainly kiss you with my goodbye kiss. And open the gate for your egress hence and from another poem i record of two simple men i saw today on the pier in the midst of the crowd parting the parting of dear friends the one to remain hung on the other's neck and passionately kissed him while the one to depart tightly pressed the one to remain in his arms The other incident dates from the late 1860s. Late one night on an empty streetcar in Washington, Whitman sat down next to the conductor, a young man named Peter Doyle, and the two felt instantly as if they had known each other for a long time. Despite an age difference of almost thirty years, they became close friends and more. There is an impassioned delicacy in Whitman's letter to Doyle a mingling of fatherly care and almost girlish love. Whitman's feelings were violently stirred, as we know from a desperate confession he made in thinly disguised code in his journal. And here's a long quotation from Whitman's journal. Cheating childish childish abandonment of myself, fancying what does not really exist in another, but is all the time in myself alone. Utterly deluded and am cheated by myself and my own weakness. Remember where I am most weak and most lacking. Yet always preserve a kind spirit and demeanor to sixteen, but pursue her no more. It is imperative that I obviate and remove myself and my orbit at all hazards away from this Incessant, excuse me, away from this incessant, enormous, and enormous perturbation. To give up absolutely and for good, from this present hour, all this feverish, fluctuating, useless, undignified pursuit of 164. Too long, much too long, preserved in, so humiliating. It must come at last, and had better come now. It cannot possibly be a success. Let there from this hour be no faltering or no getting at all henceforth, not once, under any circumstances. Avoid seeing her or meeting her or any talk or explanations or any meeting whatever from this hour forth for life. End quote. Here, for virtually the only time in all of his notebooks, Whitman cries out to himself, for himself. He writes within a privacy made even more private by the nervous substitution of a number code for the initials of Peter Doyle. P is the 16th letter of the alphabet, and D is the 4th, and by the reversal of genders. This is no staged utterance, or half-shaped poem, but, in the most modern, most tormented sense, a rank argument with oneself. The very sort of argument that Whitman never allowed to issue into poetry. Indeed, he had to strangle and overmaster it before it smashed his speaking voice. Whitman knew what he was feeling here, and he could not bear it. And as an aside, it's remarkable to think that, uh, he was able to master this way of thinking and this voice to write not only the love poetry that he did, but any of the poetry that he did. he goes on to say, in another journal entry, Whitman wrote, quote, Depress the adhesive nature. It is in excess, making life a torment. All this diseased, feverish, disproportionate, Adhesiveness. End quote. Psyche has lit her lamp. She knows whom she loves, and her lover flees, or she herself flees. Her erotic drive and the knowledge of its object leave Psyche in a state of desperate perplexity. The most private core of her being is suddenly unshielded. Yes, that is what she had longed for, but longing is not the same. It is a way of being with oneself substituting oneself for the distant and unknown lover but now the lover is here a puzzled young man flattered by whitman's devotion drawn to him in complicated ways grateful to him but irrevocably remote and mysterious as another human being must be the aside that i kept myself from saying before sort of hinges on this as well I I wonder how my own young life and the young life of many other people out there who might listen to this, how different our lives may have been in high school or later or before high school if we had been taught that longing is not the same thing as finding someone to actually be with. If we understood that maybe sometimes, and for some people and for some periods in their life, that maybe longing is it, and that maybe longing should be enough. Uh, what I w- what I was beginning to say before is that at some point, if I'm still doing this podcast, I would love to do an episode on how the portrayal of love in movies must have just ruined the expectations or the the outlook on love for many, many people. And, um, and in this I don't mean that love is a sham and love is a lie. I definitely don't believe that. I think that romantic love and all other kinds of love are basically the only thing that people live for, uh, whatever kinds of clothes you put on it love is it. But uh, the love we find in popular culture um, is not that kind of love. And when we're given examples of these utterly bizarre examples as young children or as teenagers of what love or sex should be, it's, uh, it's just incredible. And I have great sympathy with uh, with Whitman here. Uh, Zweig goes on to say if we compound this element, this elemental drama of self-risk with the stifling taboo on homosexual love in Victorian America we glimpse the desperate conflict in Whitman's inmost character. He could accept his sexuality only as a form excuse me He could accept his sexuality only as a form of intransitive ecstasy, its object concealed by darkness, the lamp unlit, or indirectly and coyly lit. Indirection was not merely an aesthetic principle for Whitman, but an erotic strategy. Furtive as an old hen, he said half-mockingly of himself, with a sly switching of his own gender. So that finally, Paul Zweig comes out with this sentence. This is unlikely to be the formula for a robust sexual life. Instead, we imagine a shy... (coughs) Excuse me. We imagine a shy circling of the flame, a flirtation with saying the unsayable, a moral passion for the forbidden zones of behavior, for the reproved and excluded ones, whom Whitman would defend as surrogates for his own self-darkened self. Whitman would not spill burning oil in his Cupid, but he would shed a half-light on him, would hint at secrets and reveal them in coded ways. He would change the name of love to adhesiveness, so outlandish as to be safely unrevealing, and he would conceptualize the sexual bond by raising it into the realm of the American sublime and calling it, quote, democratic. His lists of young men, his passionate devotion to the wounded soldiers in the war hospitals, were other circlings of the flames. Were at least some of Whitman's young men also bed partners? Such encounters, trysts in the dark, the lamp unlit, leave no trace, although I would guess that they were, and that they were not, happy experiences, that the pain of loving in vain was somehow better and more sustaining for him. Whitman's genius was not, finally, for love, but for poetry, and for the obscure moral courage that keeps the deep source of emotions fully alive, even when the familiar sentimental satisfactions are lacking. For a dozen years and more, Whitman lived on this precarious edge. From the body of the, quote, truculent giant, Whitman's figure for democratic America, he turned to his own large-boned body, and the two bodies, in a conceptual leap that remade American literature, became one. We understand now the undertone of hysteria, and the poignancy of some of Whitman's notes. One of these says, quote, Poem incarnating the mind of an old man, whose life has been magnificently developed, the wildest and most exuberant joy, the utterance of hope and floods of anticipation, faith in whatever happens, but all enfolded in joy, 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 which underlies and overtops the whole effusion. Whitman would not make poetry out of the argument with himself. Instead, he would pour ecstasies of hope and anticipation into a dream of self-making, of self-transcendence, of which the fundamental discipline would be the making of poems. These poems would not be monologues of inward conflict and resolution. They would leap cleanly with a tone of casual conviction into a vision of expanded being. The joy, joy, joy of the notebook would become the stalwart, magnificent old man of I Sing the Body Electric. And here's a a section from that poem. This man was of wonderful vigor and calmness and beauty of person, the shape of his head, the richness and breadth of his manners, the pale yellow and white of his hair and beard, the immeasurable meaning of his black eyes these i used to go to and visit him to see he was wise also he was six feet tall he was over eighty years old his sons were massive clean bearded tanned faced and handsome they and his daughters loved him all who saw him loved him they did not love him by allowance they loved him with personal love he drank water only The blood showed like scarlet through the clear brown skin of his face. He was a frequent gunner and fisher. He sailed his boat himself. He had a fine one presented to him by a ship joiner. He had fowling pieces presented to him by men that loved him. When he went with his five sons and many grandsons to hunt or fish, you would pick him out as the most beautiful and vigorous of the gang. You would wish long and long to be with him. You would wish to sit by him in the boat, that you and he might touch each other. Whitman's old man lounges beyond sexual incompleteness, beyond the edgy inward drama of Cupid and Psyche. He stands for the self that Whitman was even then making in his poems and in his person. Within half a dozen years, He would stride compassionately between rows of hospital beds, his reddish face, large frame, and flowing beard the embodiment of magnetic health and patriarchal confidence. How poignant, then, this note that Whitman appended to the anguished confession of his love for Peter Doyle, the quote, Wise man reproves nobody, blames nobody, nor ever speaks of himself. All his desires depend on things within his power. His appetites are always moderate. He observes himself with the nicety of an enemy or spy and looks on his own wishes as betrayers. Whitman's dream of an unwounded life is wistful and intense when set beside his capitalized and underscored cry of pain. And as an aside, that's. It, It's true. Just think of uh, the section from I Sing the Body Electric and many of the kinds of poems and the tone of those poems that Whitman is known for and just compare it with the person who says he observes himself with the nicety of an enemy or a spy and looks on his own wishes as betrayers. The ability of that person to write the poems that he did is uh, incredible, but that, I suppose, that is art. Um, uh, Zweig goes on to say, He had not only acted as part of a rough, or his later part of a commanding good, grey poet, he had recoiled from an inward hunger he rarely expressed. When, for once, he spilled his pain across a page he had meant for wiser notations, he fled reflexively to the glorious fantasy that, for almost twenty years, had nourished his poetry. This is a quote from that poem. Outline sketch of a superb, calm character. His emotions, etc., are complete in himself, irrespective, indifferent, of whether his love, friendship, etc., are returned or not. He grows, blooms like some perfect tree or flower in nature, whether viewed by admiring eyes or in some wild or wood entirely unknown. His analogy, the earth, complete in itself, enfolding in itself all processes of growth, effusing life and power for hidden purposes. End quote. Faced with a painful reality, Whitman called forth the image of a magnetic, large-spirited old father, drawn from the vocabulary of the benign Stoic Epictetus, from America's hagiographical worship of the Fathers of the Revolution, and from his own lifelong fascination with old age as a triumph and a release. This image became a talisman, a companion of his mind. It became, finally, a template for his desire, to be self-made or never-made, as his phrenological mentor, Orson Fowler, had put it. Eventually, Whitman became the sage of Mickle Street in Camden, New Jersey, portrayed in Thomas Eakin's marvelous portrait and in the finest array of photographs ever taken of a poet. Garrulous and playful, superbly gifted for old age, having practiced the part all his life. Even an old age of half paralysis, with long spells of debilitating exhaustion, dizziness, and never-relenting gastric pains. He would talk stagily and wonderfully to his little band of disciples and dangle his, quote, secret before young Horace Trabell, who transcribed his master's every word into a serene, opinionated, fatuous, often wise record of an old man's musings. This was Whitman's gift, to shape his life to his deepest musings, to become the man of his words. For a dozen years, during the 1850s and 1860s, the words were superb, the self-making and open-ended uncertain experiment. Whitman leapt leapt repeatedly to his pastoral vision, leapt and recoiled, and in the poems he recorded the pendulum movement. The exaltation and the lapse into pain. What is important here is Whitman's instinct for his subject matter, sensory expansion, physical ecstasy, and his ability to mold the resources of his poetry in order to express it. From the crucible of the erotic, he made a new form and a new tone, spacious, miscellaneous, sometimes refined, to the heated intensity of a love poem sometimes expanded to embrace the phantasmic yet vividly various lover the world and that is the long section from Paul's Zweig's book Walt Whitman The Making of the Poet on Whitman and sexuality I just had one thought as I was reading, it, reading that and, and I'll leave it there for tonight and that is if there's a reason for people to read or know about the biographies of the poets or the artists that they admire, this is one example of it, because it, it can be very easy for someone to come across Whitman's poetry and imagine him as this sort of freewheeling uh, sexual acrobat and this uh, garrulous poet. Uh, easily sociable person who was friends with everybody and who could talk to everybody and was at ease with everybody. And so it's, and especially to a young person coming to poetry or a young person just, or someone in their twenties or thirties, I guess of any age uh, coming across someone who is quote unquote famous or quote unquote well known and to, take the clichés of their life that have entered the popular mind in Whitman's case of being very sociable and perhaps of being gay and perhaps of uh, having strings of lovers and to to take that as a model for one's own life that might not seem quite as exciting. Uh, so that reading this and understanding that this is only an interpretation of what may have been Whitman's private life. It's worth seeing that perhaps these people who portray themselves or or are portrayed by others as being so easy and free and alive are actually the exact opposite, and that things and that the things and the art and the expressions that they have found the talent to use to make their world is just that. It is a a miraculous front that can help people and inspire people, but it is not the real life and fame is not real life and nor is renown and we have to imagine Whitman walking the streets with a young man, and just like everyone else we can imagine, just simply feeling nervous and self conscious and wondering what exactly he should say. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one